The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And then what you do to make deterrence really work is you threaten very subtly to use nuclear weapons if you're in a losing fight over Taiwan. Uh, this is the way you make deterrence work. You just tell the Chinese that, look, there is a possibility you'll win. We believe that uh, you'll pay an awful price to win. But you want to remember that if you win, there's no guarantee that we won't turn to nuclear weapons. You can do this in very subtle ways. And, and, and just the whiff of possible nuclear use has an enormous amount of deterrent value. So I think, you know, for the foreseeable future, the United States can maintain a formidable deterrent posture vis-a-vis Taiwan, even though we are rapidly reaching the point and may have already reached the point where we can't win a military victory over Taiwan. I'm Jack Goldsmith, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 9, 2021. I sat down with John Mearsheimer, the R. Wendell Harrison Distinguished Service Professor in the Political Science Department at the University of Chicago, to discuss his recent article in Foreign Affairs called The Inevitable Rivalry, America, China, and the Tragedy of Great Power Politics. That essay argues that America's engagement with China following the Cold War and its fostering of the rise of China's economic and thus military power was the worst strategic blunder any country has made in recent history. Mir Shaber and I discussed why he thinks this, why he believes we currently are in a Cold War with China that is more dangerous than the one with the Soviet Union, and what concretely the U.S. government should do now to check China's power. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 9, America, China, and the Tragedy of Great Power Politics. So, John, you have a characteristically insightful and damning critique of U.S. foreign policy towards China since the end of the Cold War in foreign affairs. Can you just tell us what your basic claim is? Well, my basic argument is that when the Cold War ended in 1989, China was an economically backward country that had lots of people. And that meant that if its economy grew by leaps and bounds in the unipolar moment, in the decades after the Cold War, it would become a peer competitor to the United States. And indeed, it would put an end to unipolarity, uh, which was a very advantageous situation for the United States. And what happened is that the American foreign policy establishment, and this includes both Republicans and Democrats, 
pushed a policy of engagement with China, which was actually designed to make China rich. The basic operating assumption that underpinned engagement was that if China became prosperous, if it was integrated into institutions like the World Trade Organization, if it was integrated into the open international economy, that it would eventually become a responsible stakeholder and it would become a democracy and therefore a peace-loving country. Of course, none of this happened except for the fact that China grew incredibly powerful. So the United States is today faced with a peer competitor, and indeed, it's engaged in a cold war with China. So I thought I'd read or heard this argument somewhere before, and I looked in your great 2001 book, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics, and you predicted then in 2001, and I guess you were writing this in the late 1990s, right when you know we were at the high point of this strategy, you predicted then that this would happen. What was the reaction to your argument 20 years ago? Well, just to be clear, I wrote in 2001, and you're correct, Jack, that I I was writing the book in the late 1990s, or at least writing that chapter in the late 1990s, that engagement was a remarkably foolish policy because China was growing so powerful. And what the United States should do is immediately try to slow down Chinese growth. Now, when I made this argument, not only in print, but when I went around the world, in fact, and made the argument publicly, most people, almost everyone, in fact, thought I was a lunatic. They thought that this was just crazy. And I think that's in large part because most people thought that with the end of the Cold War, basic realist logic, great power politics as we had known it before 1989, had been relegated to the dustbin of history. And we were just operating in a new world. So making China really powerful didn't matter. And it was inconceivable to most people that China would eventually become a peer competitor to the United States. For a realist like me, it was axiomatic that that would happen. China uh, would be deeply concerned with establishing hegemony in Asia, which was not in the American national interest. And then it would build a lot of power projection capability to challenge us around the world. This is just the way great powers operate. It's nothing peculiar to China. So growing this country, helping it to become really powerful was a prescription for real trouble. But nobody bought that argument because this was a period when liberalism ran wild in the streets. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit, because as you point out in your essay, realism has been the dominant American mode of conducting foreign policy since the beginning. And was this the only moment in which, I mean, I mean, I just, it's weird that what happened in the 1990s exactly, why was it that what you describe as the dominant realist mode in American foreign policy making, why was it interrupted then? And was it just in the 1990s? Did it did it get going earlier? Was this just an aberrational moment for the United States? I mean, what? Why the 1990s? I think it's very simple, Jack. It had to do with unipolarity. Before 1990, the United States either operated in a bipolar world, which was the case, of course, during the Cold War, or a multipolar world, which was the case before 1945. That meant that by definition, there was another great power in the system, whether it was only one, like the Soviet Union in the Cold War, or three or four 
like Japan, Germany, France, and Britain before World War II didn't matter. The fact is that there were other great powers that the United States had to compete with. And when you have to compete with other great powers, realism dominates your foreign policy thinking and your actions. But what happened starting in roughly 1990 is that we transitioned into a unipolar world where the United States was the only great power on the planet. And by definition, you can't have great power politics because there's only one great power. So it's easy to think that realism no longer matters and you can pursue a highly ideological foreign policy. And in this case, it was liberal hegemony. The United States, after all, is a thoroughly liberal country which is a wonderful thing for purposes of living inside this country. But as a foreign policy, this liberal hegemony did nothing but get us into trouble. But it also accounts for the fact that we didn't engage in realpolitik with other great powers because there were no other great powers. And therefore, we could operate under the illusion that, uh, as Frank Fukuyama put it in his famous 1989 article, that history had ended. So given that, given that it was this unipolar moment, and given that there was a broad consensus in the foreign policy establishment that we didn't face a serious threat, wouldn't it have been hard just domestically in terms of domestic politics and presidential politics? Wouldn't it have been difficult at that moment in the 1990s to take the aggressive actions against China that you that you suggest in the paper that we should have taken in the paper? It would have been virtually impossible. The United States was intoxicated with liberal triumphalism. I think it's reflected in Frank Fukuyama's article, which I think is one of the most important articles ever written in American history. We basically believed that we had defeated fascism in the first half of the 20th century, and then defeated communism in the second half of the 20th century. And the future was liberalism on top of liberalism on top of liberalism. Frank's basic argument is that we have the wind at our back, that the world is going to become increasingly liberal. And then when you take into account just how much power we had, because it was a unipolar system and the United States was the sole pole, we could think about using that enormous military power to facilitate the speed at which democracy spread around the world. And of course, this is what got us into democracy promotion in places like the Middle East and ultimately got us into a whole heck of a lot of trouble. But that came much later. And as you well remember, in the early 1990s, there was unbounded optimism about the future inside the United States. So for somebody like me to come along and say what the United States should do is try and prevent China from growing was an argument that just wasn't going to sell. And, and it didn't sell. And, and so I'm just wondering what the nature of the mis- Was it a mistake in the 1990s? Was it just a tragic situation where, given the unipolar moment, you know, politics just didn't permit any other outcome? Was the United States acting irrationally? I mean, how would you characterize you know, what was going on in the, ni- in the 1990s? It sounds like it was inevitable, given your account. Yes, but it was a strategic blunder of the first order. As I wrote in the piece, that this is probably the greatest strategic blunder in modern history. The elites in this country, and this again includes both Republicans and Democrats, 
helped to create a peer competitor. They purposely created a peer competitor. It's just, in my opinion, unthinkable that we would do this. But the elites, starting after the Cold War ended, it became convinced that the world had changed uh, and that we were in an ideal position to create a, a peaceful world by spreading democracy and making countries around the world like China rich. But it was, it was a wrong-headed way to do business. And we're going to pay an awful price for this. Well, all you have to do is read the newspaper every day about the possibility of war over Taiwan to recognize just how dangerous the situation is that we are in. And the American foreign policy establishment helped create this situation. Right. Okay. We're going to get to that in a second. I want to get to the current situation. So you talk in the essay about what the United States should have done in the 1990s. Can you just summarize that? And, you know, we engaged them in the WTO. We gave them most favored nation status in increasingly elaborate ways. We opened them up to global markets. What, what should we have done? What should the United States have done? And what, in this counterfactual world, what would the impact have been? Well, in 1990, they had 175th the per capita GNP of the United States. This is a way of saying that China was a desperately backward country in 1990. And of course, it was committed to growing at a rapid pace in the decades ahead. But to do that, they needed to trade with the United States and its allies. They needed us to invest foreign capital in China. They especially needed Western technology. And uh, we went to great lengths to facilitate their integration into the world trading system. We allowed them to acquire huge amounts of Western technology, uh, huge amounts of money was invested in China. And again, this was all done on purpose. We were helping on purpose. We were trying to make China more powerful. Now, what we should have done was we should have gone to great lengths to prevent technology from flowing to China, limiting investment in China, limiting capital flows, and certainly limiting trade. As you said, we gave them most favored nation trading status throughout the 90s, and then foolishly gave them permanent most favored nation status in 2000. And then in 2001, and George W. Bush was the president then, in 2001, uh, he put the finishing touches on bringing China into the World Trade Organization. And bringing China into the World Trade Organization and giving it permanent most favored nation trading status did an enormous amount to help China grow by leaps and bounds. Uh, so we were taking all sorts of steps which we should not have taken to help China grow. And we should have purposely tried to slow it down. Now, I think there were limits to what we could do. And uh, I think China still would have grown. But China would not be a great power, in my opinion, today, had we taken tough measures with them uh, or with China. And uh, by the time it became a great power in, in a few years' time, it would not be as powerful as it is now. The fact is, it, it's too late to really slow China down in any meaningful way. You could have slowed 
down Chinese growth in the early 1990s, maybe even in the early 2000s. But at this point, it's just too late. Trump, of course, tried, but I don't think Trump uh, had great success simply because it was too late. Yeah, I want to get to that. I just have one more question about the 90s, trying to understand this period. So you also talk about, and this was certainly true, that American business was extremely interested in opening up China to the world. And uh, this was a large component of what was pushing kind of neoliberalism at the time. I'm just wondering, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but were there debates inside the administration? I mean, you basically we're talking about the George H.W. Bush and Clinton administrations. Were there voices inside the defense establishment, for example, that were pushing back against the implications and fighting with the commercial interests and the kind of neoliberal foreign policy interests being expressed in other parts of the administration? Or was this just a uniform consensus? I think it was basically a uniform consensus. I've been unable to find any evidence that anyone in the national security establishment narrowly defined thought that we should try to slow down Chinese growth, that engagement was a foolish policy. There maybe have been a handful of voices who had that perspective, but my guess is that they didn't get very far based on my own experience. The thing you do want to remember, though, is that because of Chinese violation of human rights, remember Tiananmen Square, some politicians, presidential candidates, and even presidents criticized China and threatened to try to punish it economically. This was Bill Clinton. When Bill Clinton ran against George H.W. Bush in 1992, he said, we're being too soft on China. And what we have to do is we have to put sanctions on China. We have to punish them. So it looked in the early 1990s when President Clinton took office like he was going to crack down on China. And that may have slowed down Chinese economic growth. But what happened to Clinton is that business interests got to him and they extolled the virtues of an engagement policy with China. And Clinton quickly flipped and became a huge proponent of engagement. George W. Bush, when he ran against Gore in 2000, George W. Bush was talking about trying to contain China during the campaign. But at the same time he was talking about containing China, he was helping President Clinton on the engagement front because he helped. This is during the 2000 presidential campaign. He, meeting George W. Bush, helped President Clinton push through permanent most favored nation trading status for China. So even George W. Bush was in favor of engagement, despite the fact that during the campaign, he was talking about containment. And then, of course, once George W. Bush becomes president, 9-11 happens. The global war on terror becomes the focal point of that administration. And there's hardly any interest in containing China. In fact, we then decide we'll work with China. And when you look at the various administrations that pursued engagement, one could make an argument that the administration that was the most enthusiastic about engagement was the George W. Bush administration. Right. 
but as you note, the Obama administration basically continued the same policy. And then a change came with Donald Trump. And Trump did take a tougher stance against China. I don't know. I mean, how popular it was. I, I don't. But it was it was pretty pervasive, and any any it it was very public, obviously, and it was very costly to both sides. I think it's, it was costly to both sides. As you note, President Biden has, to some people's surprise, continued Trump's hard nosed policy. So why why were the, why the change in the Trump administration was this an accident of Donald Trump, you know, of Donald Trump's making? Was it because Trump disregarded the blob? I mean, does Trump get credit for this? How are we supposed to think about, how would you assess what Trump did? Well, first of all, he does deserve credit. I mean, he is the person who basically flushed engagement down the toilet bowl and moved us towards containment. And as you correctly said, President Biden is following in the footsteps of President Trump. And in fact, there are people who argue that Biden is tougher on the Chinese than Trump was. But Trump is the person who is responsible for shifting gears. Now, what's going on here? I think there are two things that are happening. One is we're transitioning out of unipolarity into multipolarity. Remember, my argument is it's only in unipolarity that you can pursue liberal hegemony and you can lock realism away in the closet because you don't have another great power to compete with. Well, with China, Remember, we turn China into a great power. Putin gets elected and he brings Russia back from the dead. So by January 2017, when President Trump moves into the White House, we are essentially in a multipolar world. And lots of people accept that. Well, if you're in a multipolar world, realism is back on the table. And inside that multipolar world, the dyad that matters the most is the U.S.-China dyad. These are two powerful countries that are staring each other in the face and are beginning to compete with each other in serious ways. And this is because we've gone from unipolarity to multipolarity. So Trump, in a sense, had perfect timing. The other thing is Trump, I think, just didn't like engagement. Trump thought that other countries in the world, including our allies, were taking advantage of us. And we were a sucker. And Trump had lots of constituents in the United States who voted for him who were hurt by engagement. You want to remember that one of the consequences of engagement is that many manufacturing jobs in the United States are destroyed. There are a huge number of disenchanted people because their jobs have gone to China or other countries in Asia. And those people voted for Donald Trump in droves. So he has a constituency that supports getting tough with China. And furthermore, as I said, I think that instinctively, Trump is someone who thinks that almost everybody is trying to take the United States to the cleaners. And he, therefore, wants to pick a fight with the Chinese. And the timing, of course, is perfect because, again, we've just moved from unipolarity to multipolarity. Yeah. So your explanation is mostly a structural international relations explanation. Y yes. But the second point you make, some people have made in stronger terms. Some people have said the populism that fueled Trump's victory was a result of, broadly speaking, the neoliberal policies of the 1990s and the displacement and maldistribution and inequality that it gave rise to in the United States. 
And so they make it in even stronger terms. The thing you're criticizing from a foreign policy perspective was what led to the rise of Trump. But I guess you don't have to choose between those explanations because they're both pushing in the same direction. Yeah, I agree with both those explanations. Yeah. I obviously agree with the structural argument, but I, I think there's no question that engagement, which you know is another way of saying neoliberalism, created all sorts of problems in the United States, having to do with lost jobs, uh, declining economic or manufacturing base, and so forth and so on, economic inequality. And Trump did a brilliant job of appealing to those people. The other thing I would say about Trump, and I don't write about this in the article, but I've written about it elsewhere, I think that Trump was a nationalist. And as a nationalist, he was very skeptical of liberalism. Liberalism is a universal ideology at its heart. It's based on the assumption that, you know, everyone on the planet has the same set of rights and Liberals tend not to care much about borders. Uh, they tend to think of the world as an international community. Trump had none of that in him. He, he was a, a thoroughgoing nationalist, and he was very explicit about that. And that appealed to a lot of people, and, and it cut against engagement. So when Trump came into office, it was quite clear that engagement was finished, uh, and he had made that line of argument during the campaign, and he delivered once he was in the White House. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. 
So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So you argue in the piece that we are already... I think this is right, the way you put it. We're already in a Cold War with China. Is that right? Yes. And you also claim that it's going to be tougher and more dangerous, maybe you can put it in your words, than the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Can you tell us why you view it through that lens? Well, I define a Cold War as an intense security competition that permeates every aspect of the relationship between the relevant countries. And I think it's very clear that the United States and the Soviet Union during Cold War I were involved in an intense security relationship that permeated the military, the economic, and the ideological dimensions of their relationship. And if you look at the present situation involving the United States and China, it's surely an intense security competition. Many people are worried that uh, a war could break out between China and the United States over Taiwan or over the South China Sea. 
in the not too distant future. This is a really dangerous situation. So you have an intense security competition. And of course, it affects our economic relationship. I mean, just look at what Trump did on the trade front. Uh, he was trying to also damage technological companies in China like Huawei. And ideologically, we refer to them as an authoritarian or a communist state. And we talk about the virtues of liberal democracy. And many people portray this uh, competition between China and the United States in ideological terms. So ideologically, economically, militarily, this is an intense competition and it's a very dangerous competition. So I think that people who deny that this is a Cold War are simply wrong. Now, I also argue in the piece, as you alluded to, Jack, that I think that this Cold War will be more dangerous than the previous Cold War. And there are a number of reasons for that. First of all, if China continues to grow economically, it will be more powerful relative to the United States than the Soviet Union was relative to the United States during the first Cold War. It's very important to understand that China is going to be a remarkably powerful country, much more so than the Soviet Union, if it continues to grow. A second point that you want to keep in mind is that the geography of this Cold War favors war more than the geography of the first Cold War. The first Cold War focused on Central Europe. It was the NATO-Warsaw Pact balance in the heart of Europe that really mattered. The brunt of Soviet military power was in Eastern Europe, and the brunt of American military power was in Western Europe. And both sides had huge numbers of allies. So what you had during the first Cold War were two massive armies with lots of tactical air, armed to the teeth with thousands of nuclear weapons. It was very difficult to imagine those two armies crashing into each other, in large part because it probably would have led to a general nuclear war in which we all would have been incinerated. So when we ran war games during the Cold War, it was very difficult, if not impossible, to get a war started in Central Europe because of the threat of nuclear escalation after these massive armies crashed into each other. If you fast forward to the present and you think about the geography in Asia, the three potential conflict situations that we worry about are a fight over the South China Sea, a fight over Taiwan, and a fight over these very small islands in the East China Sea. It's much easier to imagine the United States and China getting into a war over those three flashpoints, because it would not involve massive armies armed to the teeth with thousands of nuclear weapons crashing into each other. In fact, what you would have is a limited war that would be fought in good part out in the water. And it's much easier to imagine that kind of conflict breaking out. This is why people are so worried about Taiwan today. Furthermore, Taiwan is sacred territory for China. Taiwan is a piece of real estate that the Chinese are 
absolutely determined to get back. And the United States is telling the Chinese, you can't have that piece of territory back. And indeed, what we're going to do is we're going to defend Taiwan from you. This, of course, enrages the Chinese, who are very nationalistic to begin with. So not only do you have this flashpoint, Taiwan, and then these two other flashpoints, the South China Sea and the East China Sea, that would involve a limited war. But in all three cases, and especially Taiwan, you're talking about sacred territory. So nationalism is a powerful force. And the argument I make is it's easy to imagine a war breaking out over one of these three flashpoints. That's not to say that it is likely or that it's going to happen. It's simply to say that it's more likely to happen than was the case in the Cold War, when you had no equivalent of Taiwan and you were faced with one major scenario that involved massive armies with nuclear weapons crashing into each other. So I think when you take the balance of power between China and the United States, compare it to the balance of power between the United States and the Soviet Union, and then you look at the geography of the two conflicts and you factor in all that nationalism that's at play in the case of China, which we did not see with the Soviet Union, there's much cause for worry here. So you didn't speak to this issue directly in the piece, but I'm curious, given unrealist premises, should the United States defend Taiwan, given its importance to China and the nature of our interest there? And then secondly, do you predict that we would? Is, our, is, uh, is Biden's recent utterance that we would defend Taiwan credible? I'll answer those questions in, in reverse order. I think we, we will axiomatically defend Taiwan. And I think Biden's comments were not accidental. They were strategically deployed. I think he was sending a clear message to the Chinese that they should understand we will fight and die for Taiwan. And then he, of course, allowed the White House to walk it back. But the fact that he's now said this two times, I think, says something. Now, your first question is, should we defend Taiwan? And the answer is yes. And I think we have no choice. And uh, there are really two reasons for that. One is the reputational effects on our alliance structure in East Asia would be disastrous if we abandon Taiwan. We are de facto committed to defending Taiwan now. If we walked away, the Japanese, the South Koreans, the Australians would not be able to rely on the United States. This would be disastrous for us. And this is especially true in the case of Japan. One does not want to underestimate the extent to which Japanese think that maintaining Taiwan is of great strategic importance. That brings me to the second reason that we will defend Taiwan and should defend Taiwan. And that is for purposes of containing China, for purposes of keeping China inside the first island chain, bottling up the Chinese Navy, the Chinese Air Force, limiting their power projection capability. It's absolutely essential that we hang on to Taiwan. Taiwan is a very important piece of real estate which is why the Japanese are so concerned about making sure that China does not capture Taiwan, because they understand that 
China would then be able to project power much further east out into the Philippine Sea and so forth and so on if it controlled Taiwan. So there are good strategic reasons having to do one with reputation and two bottling up the Chinese Navy and Air Force containing those forces inside the first island chain that, in my opinion, make it imperative to defend Taiwan. So that position assumes that we would we would win that conflict. And I assume you believe that's true as well? No, I think it, it's not clear that we would win today. And I think in 10 years, we wouldn't win in any meaningful way. But you don't have to win to get deterrence. In other words, you can make sure the other side doesn't win, and it's a stalemate. Or you can make sure if they win, they pay a god-awful price to win. In other words, you make it a pyrrhic victory. So the ideal situation for the United States is to be able to defeat China in a fight over Taiwan. I think those days are probably gone. And if they're not gone, they're going to be gone shortly. But nevertheless, you get a lot of deterrent value out of preventing the other side from winning, you know, fighting to a tie and from preventing the other side from winning a decisive victory. And then what you do to make deterrence really work is you threaten very subtly to use nuclear weapons if you're in a losing fight over Taiwan. Uh, This is the way you make deterrence work. You just tell the Chinese that, look, there is a possibility you'll win. We believe that uh, you'll pay an awful price to win. But you want to remember that if you win, there's no guarantee that we won't turn to nuclear weapons. You can do this in very subtle ways. And just the whiff of possible nuclear use has an enormous amount of deterrent value. So I think, you know, for the foreseeable future, the United States can maintain a formidable deterrent posture vis-a-vis Taiwan, even though we are rapidly reaching the point and may have already reached the point where we can't win a military victory over Taiwan. But can I just press you on just one more point about threatening nuclear use I'm a little skeptical that we can make that a credible claim in 2021, 2022 over Taiwan. Can you explain why you think that we can credibly threaten to use nuclear weapons to force a stalemate in Taiwan? But what, why do you think we can't make that threat? You think it's incredible? I, I think it's not believed. I think <laughs> I, I, I can't, I don't really have a basis for this. I just think that the use of nuclear weapons, that would be, tactical use of nuclear weapons, I take it. I just think there's almost a taboo on it or there's a perceived taboo. And I'm not sure, I'm just not confident that the United States can muster the either, I'm not sure we can even make the threat publicly. And I'm just not sure that we would follow through. So I guess I'm just skeptical. I don't know what the basis for the skepticism is, but I'm wondering why, how can the United States make that credible? You think just, just mentioning the possibility makes it credible? Yes. Yeah. The logic underpinning that argument is that the consequences of nuclear use are potentially so horrendous that all there has to be is some small chance that they would be used. It's the analogy I like to use is if you have a gun that has 100 chambers in the barrel, 
and you put one bullet in one of the hundred chambers, and then you spin the barrel and you go up to someone and say, I'm going to pull the trigger, but there's only a 1% chance you're going to die because there's only one bullet in all hundred chambers. That person is still going to be scared stiff, even though there's only a 1% chance because the consequences are so horrendous. So all you have to do with regard to nuclear weapons is give some hint that you will use them, right? And that will make the other side really scared. Now, there's one other element to this issue. You want to remember, Jack, as I said before, that this is not Central Europe, right? This is a possible conflict in the South China Sea, possible conflict over Taiwan, or possible conflict over these tiny islands in the East China Sea. If there's any place where you might use nuclear weapons, those are the places, right? Because you could use nuclear weapons out in the water. You don't have to attack the Chinese mainland. So if someone gets desperate, and this someone is the United States, and by the way, it might be the Chinese who get desperate, right? Just think about a situation where the Chinese are losing a war over Taiwan. Let's assume we have the capability to clobber China in a war over Taiwan, and they're losing badly. Don't you think there is at least some small possibility that they would try to rescue the situation with nuclear weapons? I do. That was my next question, actually. I was wondering whether they have a credible nuclear threat. And are are you suggesting that both sides have this nuclear threat and therefore both sides will be deterred from fighting over Taiwan? Is that the basic logic? Yeah. I mean, look, you can't be 100 percent certain that that will be the case. But the mere fact that both sides have nuclear weapons and may use those nuclear weapons does serve as a deterrent. There's just no question about that. And any American policymaker who thinks you can just go to war with China and whoop up on the Chinese and that they're not going to countenance using nuclear weapons is living in a fool's paradise. So it seems to me like you mentioned the South China Sea, and it seems like there the possibilities for mistake and conflict are, are greater. And it seems to me also that China's influence in the South and East China Sea has been growing. You suggest in your piece that one way to tamp down on the possibility of war is to establish rules of the road for so you can avoid accidental military clashes. What does that look like, and and how likely is it that they can cooperate like that? I mean, how likely is it that they can reach rules of the road that that accommodate both sides' interests? Seems it seems like unlikely to me. Well, if we're talking about let's call it an inadvertent or accidental war, both sides have a deep-seated interest in making sure that some incident, let's say where two ships crash into each other or uh, two aircraft crash into each other, uh, both sides have very powerful incentive in that situation to tamp down the escalatory pressures. So you can create a hotline, you can create all sorts of understandings about what each side will do in the event that happens that go a long way, I think, to preventing some sort of major accident from escalating out of control. So that's really what I'm talking about. 
but but again, I think there are limits to what you can do there, right? Yeah. I think, look, the Chinese believe that they should be able to turn the South China Sea into a giant lake. And that means the waters are no longer international and uh, they basically own the water and that they can build islands uh, in the South China Sea and that we will do nothing. I think those days are over. I think the United States is in their face. The United States is interested in containing them. And now when the Chinese begin to push in the South China Sea or the East China Sea, uh, the United States will be there to meet them. And uh, the situation, therefore, is getting more dangerous. Yeah, it seems to me like that the situation is dangerous because the United States is increasingly testing these sovereignty claims of the Chinese in the South China Sea. Is there public evidence that the United States and China are, are, are trying to establish these rules of the road, as you call them, to try to avoid accidental conflict? Yes, there is. There is. There, there's all sorts of evidence that the two sides are talking. And, and I think that the military commanders, at least on the American side, are very interested in working out rules because they're on the front lines. And uh, they understand that an accident is a real possibility, and they have a vested interest in making sure it doesn't spin out of control. Jack, if I can make one other quick point on this, it's very important to understand that if you assume that China is going to continue to grow over time at a more rapid pace than the United States, which is what most people assume, we don't know for sure whether this will happen. Time is on China's side. Time works against the United States because China grows more powerful relative to the United States over the next 10, 20 years. This is the argument that China should not cause any trouble over Taiwan now. They should wait 20 years when they're much more powerful relative to the United States. But what this tells you is that now is the time for the United States to move to establish rules of the road. Because our bargaining position, so to speak, only becomes weaker with the passage of time as the balance of power shifts against us. So I believe the United States is behaving quite aggressively these days because I think American policymakers understand that we want to make it clear to the Chinese now what they can and can't do in the South China Sea. We don't want to sit back and give them, you know, 10, 15, 20 years to grow and then let them establish the rules of the road. So I think if you sort of look at what's going on, the Americans have been behaving quite aggressively recently. It started with President Trump, and I think that President Biden is continuing those hard-nosed policies. And again, I think this is in good part because both presidents and their administrations were filled with people who understood that time is not on our side. John, that's a great place to end. Thank you. That was hugely elucidating. My pleasure, Jack. Thank you for having me on. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer is Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.